Well, uh, special greeting. Uh, that was, um, man, you see them and um, they're going to be the next generation. And uh, what a privilege it is to uh, raise up a godly generation, uh, God, uh, leave behind a godly heritage, a godly legacy. And uh, man, just to see how God is growing our church, not just in terms of adults, but from the ground up, a real grassroots effort, um, making um, many of our mothers fertile. So praise God for that. But uh, continue to be in prayer. Uh, I mean, as uh, Pastor Marcus exhorted and shared, uh, just uh, there are many things to pray for, especially with missions kicking off um, very shortly. And really, just a lot of prayer is needed. And just, I think we all sense the, uh, the, the need and the weight uh, and the urgency to pray. And pray especially even uh, just continually until uh, they get back for leaders and for their scouting trip. Uh, continue to pray for the hams, of course, and for the various needs of our church, and especially our, our work uh, in gospel ministry during this summer. Well, I do have the privilege of uh, opening up the Word of God to you from John chapter 20. And to continue in that and getting into John chapter 20 is a, is like little, a little like stepping into an avalanche. Um, you know, James began this series. He started this series with an overview on June 24th, 2001. Now, it's June 18th, 2006. And we are in chapter 20. Some of you well, weren't, uh, who are now married weren't married and on June 24th, 2001. Didn't have children. June 24th, 2001. Some of us didn't start seminary. June 24th, 2001. Some of us weren't in this church. June 24th, 2001. But uh, five years later, many things have happened and... Uh, we are here stepping back into the Gospel of John and really uh, just uh, two or three sermons away from the close. But I want to begin this morning not with anything lofty or high. I want to begin with baseball. How many of you, know, you know, just you can raise your hands if you want to or not, but how many of you know who Babe Ruth is? You can raise your hands, obvious. How many of you know, maybe just any facts about him? Nothing too geeky, but just, you know, who he played for, maybe where he, when he played, kind of what era, what position, maybe like some of the records he holds. How many of you know, kind of know something about him? Well, some, probably more of you, but it's okay. How many of you know, then, who Lou Gehrig is? Lou Gehrig, all right. How many of you know any facts about Lou Gehrig? How many of you know like you know his, some of his stats maybe records he's held team he played for things like that how many of you know a little bit less right but how many of you know Lou Gehrig because of Lou Gehrig's disease and not because of baseball let's see there you go alright <laughs> more of the women all raise their hands well <laughs> let me tell you a little bit about Lou Gehrig Lou Gehrig holds 11 um, single, all right, season and career records as a first baseman. He holds nine other career lifetime records, not just for first baseman, for any position. He scored a record game-winning run in eight World Series games. He held the staggering record of playing 2,130 consecutive games, that's 14 straight seasons without missing a game, in an age where there was no sports medicine, there were no jacuzzis, there were no therapy, therapists. There was nothing. He played for 14 straight seasons, enduring two seizures and one ball to the head. Yet, 
despite the staggering records that he holds and being probably the greatest first baseman that ever played the game, Ruth is the icon, right? He is the one that's larger than life. Everybody knows Babe Ruth kind of like everybody knows Michael Jordan, even, even if you've never watched the basketball game. Gehrig was the down-to-earth, humble superstar who came in and did his job day in and day out without any fuss and quietly became perhaps the greatest first baseman. But Ruth, with staggering numbers himself, I believe could not have been Ruth and put up those numbers if it were not for the help of Gehrig backing him up. And see, these two played on the New York Yankees for over 10 years, and this fearsome duo proved unstoppable to major league pitchers during that time because you couldn't pitch around one because you're going to have to face the other. And you can't pitch around both because you can't put two men on base. You see, the resurrection as a doctrine is a lot like Lou Gehrig because some of us here, I mean, pretty much all of us here probably have heard of Lou Gehrig's disease or heard that name thrown about. And the doctrine of the cross is a lot like Babe Ruth. Everybody knows Babe Ruth. Everybody's heard about the cross. At least they've seen a cross. At least they know that there was a man sometime long ago in Israel who died on a cross. And the resurrection, <clears throat> being the minor player in Christian theology, gets to shine for a bit during Easter, right? But what do people really know about the resurrection? What do you really know about the resurrection? What do unbelievers really know from you, from us as a church, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Christ? And how much of a role does it play in the Christian life? My prayer is that after these two studies, uh, not only this week but next, the resurrection will become more like a Babe Ruth in your minds, not as much of a Lou Gehrig. And we would be more of an everyday reality for our church, even as that the last song that Pastor Joe led us in, we sang, for our individual walks in Christ would be strengthened through an understanding of this doctrine. This doctrine will become more vivid and alive, and hopefully the resurrection of Christ and all of its glory will become embedded in our hearts and in our minds. Because as we'll see with the disciples, right, not just the eleven, but all of his followers, the resurrection, though predicted by Scripture and Christ's own words, was a truth that they could not grasp. They heard Christ's words, but those words lay quiet at the doorstep of their minds. If you turn with me to John 20 then, we will take a look at verses 1 through 18. 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings there, lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Verse 8, So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, 
that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Well, I think immediately as you look at John chapter 21 through 18, you will note the the details, the particularity with which John records this section. It is precise and it is meticulous and he documents it in this way because our very Christian faith hinges not only on the cross, but it hinges on this very great doctrine. 1 Corinthians 15.3, through 3-4 says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And Paul goes on to talk about the many resurrection appearances of the Lord. The early church, as witnessed uh, in the book of Acts, consistently preached the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection. Both events were seen as inextricably bound together as one divinely powerful act of God's salvation. The fact of the cross is followed by the fact of the empty tomb. And we can't leave one or the other out. The record of the preaching of the early church. You just go through the book of Acts. See how many times the resurrection is brought up. This leads to the inescapable conclusion that Christ's death and resurrection were both, both essential for the proclamation of saving truth. If you wanted to know what saving truth was, if you wanted to know what true Christian doctrine was, what was apostolic doctrine? It was the death of Christ and it was the resurrection of Christ. It was the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, as Peter puts it. In Acts 1.22, the apostles lose one of their own, Judas. So as they're choosing his replacement, Peter stands and declares that this man, this new replacement, the new apostle, has to have been with them from John's baptism until Christ's ascension. So it's among this pool of men that one must be chosen. And he, interestingly enough, calls their work, their ministry this, to become a witness, to testify with us of his resurrection. The founders of the church considered their mandate and the role that they, the role that they filled to be testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody can say after reading Acts, and of course the rest of the New Testament, Colossians 3, just being one passage among many, that the resurrection of Christ is nothing less than an absolute pillar of the Christian faith. 
And if you remove that, may the whole house come down upon us. You see, we read the book of Acts, we have Colossians, we have Ephesians, we have all of these books, we have the full canon of Scripture. So after 2,000 years, we have the full revelation and we know about the resurrection. We know at least how important it is. We know its crucial nature, it's pivotal. But Peter and John, the very disciples of Christ, they did not. What happened when Christ was taken away? Did they stand up for Christ and fight? Did they go out and boldly declare the gospel? No, they fled and scattered in fear, without an aim, without a goal, without a purpose, and left the women, right, in a sense, to bear the cross of the agony and the shame of watching Him die. The women, Mary and uh, Jesus' mother, and all these women were there, but none of the men were to be found. But Mary Magdalene as well, as this text clearly tells us, did not know. And it seems like none of his followers really understood what the resurrection was all about. They didn't get it. And they didn't get the fact that he had to die and more importantly had to be raised again. So all three figures are confronted, as your outline, teaches, as your outline tells us, by a greater vision of Christ and his purposes through the resurrection. First, for Peter and John, there, there is a greater vision of Christ and His purpose through His absence. Right? That shouldn't be a question mark. He is absent there, right? Through His absence. Through the empty tomb. And then in the rest of uh, this chapter, or rest of 1 through 18, you, the greater vision of Christ and His purpose is given to Mary Magdalene through the presence of Christ. Through the presence of Christ. And that's what we're going to be confronted with this morning in our own lives as well as we read this text, as we examine it, a greater vision of Christ and His purpose in the history of redemption, yes, but in our own lives as well. As we look at then His absence and Him encountering Peter and John through the empty tomb, you'll note that Scripture is the key element in Christ presenting this greater vision, in Christ correcting Peter and John. Scripture is the key factor, and yet that isn't grasped until much later, much after this event, as verse 9 teaches us. You know, in the first ten verses then, we see the beginnings of the disciples' knowledge kind of forming, coming all together, being completed. We are confronted here in these first ten verses with the inspired record of the scene at the garden of Joseph of Arimathea and the empty tomb wherein Christ's lifeless body was laid just three nights before. In this record, we are given a greater vision of Christ's glory and God's purpose for His Son. Calvary is over, but Christ is not done. Christ is raised, but Christ must ascend. And this greater vision is given first through the empty tomb. And as Peter and John approach the tomb and as they look in, right? what are the features, what are the components within this empty tomb that bring about this kind of crystallization in their minds that Jesus is right, that Jesus is raised? Well, John gives us three proofs of the resurrection here. Three proofs that the resurrection is real. And if the resurrection is real, it is divine. It is divine. It is not a human fabrication. It is not a work of man. It is not someone's, it invented in someone's mind. It's not a fancy. It's not a whim. It is real. And if it's real, it's done by God. Three evidences 
that turn the light bulb inside John's head and brilliantly magnifies Christ, a greater vision of who he is. The first is in verse 1. Mary, early in the morning, other gospel records tell us she was with other women. I believe she probably, because she seems to have a special love and devotion to Christ because he exercised seven demons from her, Luke tells us that. She probably got there before the other women. It was still dark, like 5 a.m., 5.30. And she sees, of course, that the, the door, the stone has been rolled away. Now, Mark 16.4 tells us that this is a very large stone. It took several Roman soldiers to roll it into its original place, into its groove and set it there. And on top of that, Matthew tells us that it was sealed, right? so that if anyone messed with it, they would get executed. And this huge stone rolled, seemingly, no guards there, nothing. Clearly a divine act. The Roman soldiers would have been put to death for sleeping on the job, or allowing someone to come in and take a body that they were guarding. Secondly, grave robbers would have faced death as well. And think about how many grave robbers there'd have to be. And they'd have, they'd, okay, they would have to have done this. They would either have to have taken out the Roman soldiers on their own, highly unlikely, or they would have had to pay them all off. And if you're a grave robber, right, you don't have that kind of money. That's why you're robbing graves, right? And no way... Did fearful, scattered, cowardly disciples go and steal the body and take down Roman soldiers, you know, move the stone and take his body away? They wouldn't do that. The gospel accounts are clear. The disciples wanted nothing to do with Christ at this point in time. And no way did one man roll the stone away from the inside. A man, right, if unbelievers say, if liberals say he's been alive, he didn't really die, from the inside, a man who just suffered the torture of crucifixion. He got up and rolled the stone away after being knocked out for three days. These scenarios, church, they're not just unlikely. This is impossible. And all the evidences, quote-unquote, and all the uh, arguments and questions and disputes that unbelievers and liberal theologians want to bring at this text, and they bring it, they bring it with a fury, they are all impossible. They are all lies. Jesus physically died on the cross and early Sunday morning, Jesus in the flesh physically rose again by the power of God. The stone has been taken away. It remains on the ground pointing to the miraculous nature of the event. It's almighty power unleashed and yet we sense at the same time that you you see the stone gone, all this mystery and power being unleashed at the same time God's accommodation to the disciples. He could have taken Christ out without you know, disturbing the tomb at all. I would think God is powerful. But he leaves, really, the door is open, not for God's sake, but really for the disciples' sake. So they might stoop in and see. And God, even in this little detail of the resurrection, is so gracious to his disciples. And you will see this in the rest of the chapter, how practical his grace is. In the face of this monumental event in history, God the Father and God the Son will open their hands to man and offer comfort and offer strengthening of faith. And may that example soak in to us and cause us to respond rightly with unbelievers as we deal with their impossible scenarios and suggestions about the resurrection. As we deal with those, those lies, as we deal with, deal with those questions, may we respond in grace as we deal again with these great truths. But the stone has been taken away 
clearly pointing to the divine nature of the resurrection. Second evidence is found in verse 7. The disciples are contacted by Mary. They take off. And they're running. And there's an interesting detail that John gets there faster than him. There's a speculation that John was probably younger, so more fleet of foot. It, it doesn't really matter to the, I mean, in, 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 to the meaning of the text ultimately, but John gets there first, but doesn't go in. Peter gets there second, doesn't stoop, just walks in. And he walks in, and what they both see is interesting. They both see in verse 6, linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying, not lying with the rest of the grave clothes, but rolled up in a place by itself. Immediately, you know, your antenna should go up. The neatness of rolling up the face cloth suggests very strongly that Christ did this to prove his resurrection. Think about it. Would grave robbers neatly roll up anything? Take the time to unwrap and roll up and carefully order the scene and then leave and take off? Impossible. And why would friends, if they stole Jesus' body, this is a corpse, why would they unwrap everything? Right? He's been anointed with spices and oils. They're going to take time to anoint everything. They're in fear for their lives. And you know, take all that time and then take his body away? Highly unlikely. Secondly, I think, what we see here is a contrast with Lazarus. Lazarus was resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. Lazarus in uh, John 11.44 walks out. And he walks out with all of his right, gra- grave clothes still on. Jesus walked out, uh, left those things behind, to show a definite break between his resurrection and Lazarus' resuscitation. Lazarus died later. Jesus Christ rose in power, victorious over death, never to die again. Something greater than Lazarus has indeed taken place. Again, any other scenario for the resurrection, it's not just unlikely, it's not just questionable or debatable, It is impossible. The resurrection was a divine act. The stone has been rolled away. The linens have been left left behind, unwrapped, face cloth carefully rolled up. And the third proof that completes this glorious vision is the key proof. The key proof. And that is this, that the resurrection is prophesied in the Old Testament scripture. The resurrection is prophesied in the Old Testament scripture. And you might want to even add there that it was predicted by Christ as well whose words are, of course, Scripture. Verse 9 reads this, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. John saw and believed. He already had saving faith. Right? Would we not say the disciples were all saved? They were all true believers? But something was missing. Something was missing. And what was missing was a genuine and full conviction that the resurrection was true and it was real. That what Christ said about rising up three days later was a real thing. And here John sees and he believes. Not saving faith, but if you will, a strengthened faith, a more convicted faith. There was a part of his faith missing and that part was now added here. But yet, John's commentary is very humble. He doesn't say, I saw and believed, and man, that Peter, he's stupid, he didn't know anything. He rushed in, an impetuous Peter, rash Peter. He saw it all first, you know, first, I mean, he saw it all, but didn't see, uh, didn't see what I saw. I saw and I believed. No, I mean, there may be something to be said there that Peter 
probably was not on the same page at this time as John. But John's commentary is that all of them, they didn't connect the dots. They didn't connect the dots. Christ's words, Old Testament scripture, just you know, fell out of their heads when they saw the empty tomb. They couldn't put these things together with the very words of God. But you know what? It's there. It's there in the scriptures. It's there in Christ's words. Even in verse 9, it says that the scriptures say that He must rise again, a word denoting absolute necessity. He must rise. He has to. It's an obligation, if you will. And here are a few Old Testament prophecies that point to His resurrection. And they come from, interestingly enough, from the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. In Acts 2 and in Acts 13. In Acts 2, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he references Psalm 16.10 and Psalm 132.11. Psalm 16.10 says this, Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that's the realm of death, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Psalm 132.11, God has sworn to him, God has sworn to David with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And this was an everlasting covenant. Again, pointing to the reality that Christ, the son of David, would rise from the dead, would not undergo decay. And David, being a prophet, knew. He knew these things. And he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That's Peter's commentary on these Psalms. The Old Testament is clear. And another verse this time pointing to even after the resurrection, to the ascension of Christ. In Psalm 110, verse 1, also quoted by the apostles, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord, Yahweh, God the Father says to the Lord, right? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. And what does Christ do after His resurrection? He ascends and where is He now? at the right hand of the Father, until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. Clearly here, this is not a reference to David in the psalm. This is not a reference to a future king, but this is a divine king. This is a divine reference. No one is going to sit at the right hand of Yahweh except for God Himself, God the Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And lastly, not mentioned in the, these Acts uh, sermons, Isaiah 52.13, Behold, Right before he talks about the sufferings of the Messiah. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The language there bears very striking resemblance to language that would be spoken of as uh, resurrection language or ascension language and Christ's enthronement. That's Isaiah 52, 13. The apostles saw it clearly after the fact. Right? after the 40 days. But it's there in the Old Testament prophecies. And it just confirms to us the harmony of Scripture, the stunning clarity, the, the intricacy, the unbelievable unity of Scripture. In terms of Christ's own words, the same thing. We have several accounts. Remember in John 2, 19-22, He says, Destroy this temple, and I will, in three days I will raise it up. Right? The Jews questioned how he's going to raise up a temple that took 46 years to build. But Jesus wasn't talking about a physical the temple. He was talking about his own body. And the disciples, John makes a commentary here. 
after he died and was raised from the dead, John 2.22, his disciples remembered that he said this. It clicked. And they believed the scripture. They believed the Old Testament. And they believed the word which Jesus had spoken, that he would rise again. Jesus' words confirm scripture. They are in harmony with Old Testament revelation. You see the connections being made there, the intricacy of scripture, the harmony of scripture. Matthew 16.21 also teaches that Jesus, from that point on, continually, as the Greek tense teaches us, continually taught them that point on about his sufferings, about his death, about his resurrection by the leaders of Israel, and even of his resurrection three days afterwards. His sufferings, his rejection, death, and resurrection. And in all three records of him teaching this, in the Gospels, the word day is used, the word that means must, absolute necessity. I must go through these sufferings, I must die, but take comfort, I will rise again. Armed with this knowledge, right, armed with this knowledge of Scripture, the inspired words of the Old Testament, the inspired words of Christ Himself, John sees the empty clothes and the empty tomb and believes. But it's a deficient belief. It's a, if you will, a partial belief. It's a belief with an ignorance mixed up into it. He doesn't understand quite yet that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an event that's driven by divine compulsion, by divine necessity. There is a heavenly, heavenly mandate upon the resurrection to take place. And having taken place, John believes, and yet that belief is still a faltering one. And as we go into looking at the next character in our study, the same is true. Mary, who showed great love and devotion, they say you know, she was uh, last at the cross, you know, first to the tomb. You know, she stayed there. She stayed with Christ, grieving and weeping. The same is true. Great love, great devotion. So much to be thankful for because she had seven demons exercised from her. And even with the presence of Christ. The disciples didn't get to see him at this, at this point in time. Mary does. Even with this presence, Mary, at that point, cannot see and grasp the big picture until Christ charges her and commissions her to go out and tell the disciples these things. So Mary, too, encounters a greater vision of Christ and His purpose, but there is an absence but it's soon taken away by the comforting and commanding presence of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Christ really presents a vision of himself that's glorious through two questions and two commands. And one of the commands is positive, one being negative. Mary, too, like the disciples, has a hole in her face. Look at verse 11. The disciples have taken off. But Mary Magdalene was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and she sees two angels there. The angels again. I mean, they're another demonstration of the divine nature of the resurrection. And it doesn't say that Mary doesn't recognize them. It says Mary doesn't recognize Jesus. So Mary knew, I believe, that these were angels and yet she cannot be consoled by them. Wouldn't it kind of dawn on her? You see two angels Something's going on here. Usually the presence of angels demonstrated that divine power was working. 
But Mary is, has got the blinders on because of her intense grief. Right? Because of her intense grief. And the angels rebuke her very mildly, very gently in verse 13. The same question that Christ will ask. Woman, why are you weeping? She's weeping continuously. And through her tears, she can't see the greater significance of the empty tomb. John saw and believed. Mary saw two times. And still her heart is what? It's set on not looking for the Lord, but looking for a body. She is set on finding out what in the world they did with her Savior. What did you do with his body? Where have you laid him, she says. In verse 13, it says there clearly, they have taken away my Lord. She's so, she's so sure that they've stolen his body. They've insulted and shamed him, not only with killing him unjustly, but to add insult to injury, they've actually stolen his body. They've desecrated his tomb. Where have they taken him? She turned around and she saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So at that moment, she sent to someone behind her. She turns around and looks. And who does she think it is? Right? She thinks it's the gardener. She thinks it's the gardener. And the gardener then asks her the same questions. Woman, why are you weeping? The first of two questions that will open up her mind. Woman, why are you weeping? And that is a good question. And Jesus, before he left, remember what he said twice. John 14. Do not be, let your hearts not be troubled. Right? Don't, be in an, don't let your hearts become uh, stirred up. Don't grieve. Don't mourn. Don't be anxious. Don't be torn because I am leaving you. This is a cause for celebration. Why are you crying so much? Why are you mourning as if I am just still a lifeless body and they've just taken me away to desecrate my tomb? It's not my tomb anymore. I am raised from the dead. Death and sin are vanquished. The words of the prophets and the words of Christ have been fully confirmed. There is no reason to mourn. Right on the heels of that question, Jesus asks the second question. She asks, whom, he asks, whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? That is important. That little pronoun there, whom. Jesus doesn't say, what are you seeking? He says, whom. And that is key. Because Mary's answer shows that she's still in a fog. She's still looking for a body. She still wants to get down to who took away the body. And she says, kind of boldly, but it seems like she was a woman of some financial means. Luke 8, 2-3 tells us that. that There were women of financial means that helped Jesus' ministry. So let's say she has money to hire some people. And she says, I'll take him away. Tell me where he is. I will go and I will take him away. You've got to love the boldness. I mean, you've got to love the passion, the devotion. But Jesus, with a very, again, mild reproof. Whom are you seeking? Mary is seeking a what? She should be seeking a who the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is her lack of full faith, a full conviction. So at this time, Jesus, in His presence, what does He do? Does He amp up the reproof? Does He slap her upside the head? Say, wake up, I'm here. I'm not the gardener. I know what you're thinking. I'm omniscient. No, He doesn't do that. (laughs) What He does is not turn it up a notch. But he actually stoops down. He actually humbles himself in a a sense. He actually lowers, if you will, the pressure. And he says, Mary. And immediately, immediately, like a child recognizes their father's voice. 
turns around and sees that it is the Lord. And she cries out, Rabboni, teacher, master. John 10.27 My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Note how Jesus so tenderly deals with this grieving sheep. This woman whose faith in Christ was genuine but in one area was deficient. Jesus calls her name gently and she turns and exclaims, Teacher, Master, Lord. This is a tender moment of recognition. Some say the greatest recognition seen in the Bible. And it's just one of those great moments where things are starting to crystallize. Mary is seeing the bigger picture. Right? She's probably stunned out of her mind that the Lord is there. And so to fill in the gaps, we have the, the remaining two verses in this chapter. Because as much as she cries out, Lord, and recognizes that indeed He's risen from the dead, it's still not all quite there. It's still all not quite there. The lack of understanding, full conviction is still there because Christ gives these two commands. And through that, Mary will rejoice at the greater vision that she has of her Lord. Mary may be a believer in the resurrection. She's seeing it face to face. She's encountering it. But she forgets the next dot. You know, you connect death and resurrection, you're good. But there's a third dot. There's a third dot on the line, and that is the ascension. That is the ascension. You see there in verse 17, Jesus said to her, so immediately probably she says Rabboni and probably falls down at her feet and starts holding on to him. She holds on to Christ, not wanting to leave him again, not wanting him to leave again. It's a desire brought on by fear of losing Christ. That's what drives her. And Christ says here a little bit more firmly, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I have not finished the task. There is one more thing left on the timeline of my glorification. Stop clinging to me. Stop seizing me. Stop holding on. And isn't it so true that our interests are often at odds with God's? Remember Peter? After his great confession, the great blunder, Christ rebukes him, right? In Matthew 16, 23, Get behind me, Satan. And he says, you know, your, your mind is set on the interests of man, not on God's. Similarly here, but not as severe, Christ stops Mary. She's more consumed with her desire and her fear that she can't see anything else. And yet, as stern as Christ could could be, He isn't strong with her much longer, but gives her truth. He gives her a commission. He gives her a charge. And this is the truth that she is to relay to the disciples truth of his full glorification that there was a cross that he was risen from the dead and that he is he is ascending he must go back to the father and so Jesus here gives her a positive command rest of verse 17 but go go to my brethren and say to them I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God interestingly here Jesus in these words again comforting his disciples with the language here, Jesus calls his disciples my brethren. He has never called them that before. In John 15:15, 15, 15, they're called friends. That's about as uh, intimate a term as he uses. This is the first time that Jesus uses brothers to refer to his disciples. He thinks of them 
so fondly now because of the cross. Why? Because the relationship between Jesus, between God and man has changed. Jesus has been incarnated. He has gone through this life in the flesh, fully human, fully God. And now he understands, he knows from the inside out what it is to be man. And so he can call himself, as Hebrew 2 tells us, brothers. They are now brothers. Their relationship has changed. And as he is going away, this fondness for them flows out in the rest of that tender message, the end of verse 17. I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Definitely he's making a distinction. Right? The pronouns there teach us that very clearly. But it's not about the distinction here. It's about the union. It's about the identification. We serve the same God. We have the same Father. The relationship has now changed. We are in the family of God. You are now included, adopted, because of the cross. Now because I am, because I am raised from the dead and because I will ascend, I have vanquished sin and death. I have vanquished hell and Satan. And you, now, free of guilt, pardoned because of the cross, forgiven of your sins, are reconciled to me. You are now one with me. You are my brothers. You are in my family. This personal and familial and intimate message is what he leaves Mary to go back and tell the disciples. See, through these two questions, these two commands, really, Jesus calls Mary to action. And that is wise because she has no time to wallow in grief. Jesus gets her right back on her feet and says, go out there, tell them this good news. Very wise on Jesus' part. Secondly, Jesus calls Mary to share good news with his brothers. And that is thoughtful and that is kind. And this good news of his ascension and of their intimate relationship to God the Father through him will then lay the foundation for the rest of their lives because that will become the foundation for their ministry as witnesses of his resurrection. Jesus, again, is altogether tender-hearted, altogether gracious and caring to his followers who desperately need that personal, loving attention. And thus, Mary's despair and disappointment is swallowed up. Swallowed up by joy. And swallowed up by a bolstered and strengthened trust in the Lord. Her vision of him is now intensely magnified. And she comes to the disciples by way of bearing a wonderful message. He is your Father. He is your God. There are several principles to be gleaned from this text. You know, as, we, as I, I looked at this text the first couple of times, I was struggling to really get not just the meaning, but what can this mean for me? You know, this is such a, in a sense, a very simple narrative, a very pivotal, of course, huge moment in the history of redemption. But what are the lessons, principles that I can glean from this text? Now, it was very difficult, but praise be to God that uh, just looking at this text over and over again, here are some of the principles that I was able to, by, by the Spirit of God, um, able to glean from this text. But the first principle is this. Um, and I guess it's a negative principle. It's a, a chastising principle for all of us. We need things... We need things seen to bolster our faith. We need to see things to make our faith more sure. Isn't that so true? Our faith is always needing help. 
inside, deep in our hearts, at our, our, our core, at our weakest moments, who we really are in the flesh, we want it all just handed to us. We want to see Christ. We want to see heaven. We want to see the original autographs of the scriptures. We want to see everything right now. But our faith is not faith if it always needs that help. Our faith is not faith right, if we rely on sight. True faith perceives the unseen as seen. You know that, that our just everyday life, we are immersed in the eternal. We are immersed in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. True faith perceives the immaterial as real, as definite, as concrete. Hebrews 11.1, 1, 2 Corinthians 4.18. We are absolutely convinced of these invisible things without a shadow of a doubt firmly convicted in our hearts that, the, that there is a great, greater realm, that there is a greater significance to this material world that unbelievers cannot see because their reason won't let them. Their fallen reason won't let them. Let me tell you, faith is greater than reason. That is why when we preach the gospel, we don't come with proofs and evidences. Note here that although I gave you the proofs that were in the text... Right? We don't doubt the resurrection for a moment. We presuppose everything in the Bible is true. And if man will not submit to that, then he is guilty. Faith leads you to true reason. The Roman Catholic Church says, from reason to faith. But how can you go from reason to faith if your reason is bankrupt already? If your mind is tainted by sin? How can you think clearly? How can you see the Bible clearly? You're not neutral. You're either on the side of God, or on your own side. Faith leads you to God-centered reason. And reason that doesn't see God for who He is as revealed in His Word is not reason at all. It's irrational. It's natural reason. Man's reason is corrupt. And so in light of that, most of us here are probably professing believers. In light of that, I urge you to exercise confident trust in the Word of God and in the God of the Word, in spite of what your reason and what your intellect and what your heart and what your gut would dictate you to think and to act and to feel. Go against your flesh. The problem with natural man is that he clings to his thinking. He clings to his own intellect, his own reasonings. And he cannot see Christ for who he is. He will not see Christ for who he is because of his reason. He thinks that he is a law unto himself, that his mind is king, that with reason and enough evidence and enough investigation, he can figure out the truth. That is ultimate self-deception. When you know that your heart is deceitful above all things, it is desperately sick. Only God can understand it. Only God can heal it. Secondly, another negative truth, We are ignorant and often blind to truth that is right in front of us. The greatest example being the disciples. I mean, you almost want to shake them. You just cannot understand how for three years sitting directly under his teaching, the end of it all, they could run away completely clueless as to what in the world is going on and what divine, miraculous, powerful, history-changing things have taken place. Our understanding, however is often incomplete as well. God will give us understanding. It says in 2 Timothy 2.7, 
that, that, that means that we need that extra boost in our minds to grasp these things. Our horizons on God's glorious purposes need to be widened. Our, our vision of who Christ is you know, in all his glory needs to be broadened. The disciples couldn't see the death, resurrection, ascension and how that was always the divine plan. Remember the word must? He must rise again. He didn't see that. We have the scriptures. We know what happened. We have the full revelation of God. And yet, so often, our clarity, our insight is greatly muddled. And this calls us to a deeper and richer word life. A wider and broader word life. A theological word life and a mindset. Not just doing quiet time, but finding the majesty of God and His plan in your devotional life. Not just quickly going through, reading the Bible through a year. But finding theology, rich, life-changing doctrine in the Word of God. And praying, of course, for that greater vision, for that life-changing clarity and insight. And this principle also teaches us, I think, as a, as a side note, that love alone is not enough. We need love and we need knowledge. Because devotion apart from knowledge can breed self-centeredness. I think you see a little of that in Mary. Her grief overwhelms her understanding. Her grief blinds her. Devotion apart from knowledge can also breed immaturity and can even breed a low view of God's Word. And some of us may have that here because we just don't fully understand the riches of the glory of our salvation in Christ and all that that entails. That is a low view. You may love Christ with all your heart. You may love Him with all your strength. You may love Him with all that you have, but you have to love Him with your mind. That is the greatest commandment. Love and knowledge must prevail. You know, if you have knowledge alone, what do you have? You have this cold, dead orthodoxy. That's liberalism. But if you have love alone, what do you have? You have a mindless devotion. You're like a chicken with his head cut off. Right? A lot of, you know, a lot of frenzy but no purpose, no aim, no big picture, no greater vision. Love alone is not enough. You need love and you need knowledge. The third principle is this, is we need Christ to graciously and thoughtfully shepherd us. We need Christ to graciously and thoughtfully shepherd us. We see this all throughout. And in the rest of John 20, you'll see that. At the end of John 21, you'll see that when he reinstates Peter. How tender he is with Peter, the coward, the defector, the traitor. Right? How tender he is. With our weak faith, with our partial knowledge and ignorance, our blind zeal and unfocused love, we desperately need Him, right? To steer our minds into the truth and into a right understanding of how truth must be used in our lives, first in our heads and then in our conduct. God didn't scold the disciples in Mary. God doesn't scold Peter even in a harsh way in John 21. He doesn't thump us. Don't you get it? He doesn't severely rebuke us. Instead, God instructs us. God encourages us to hear, to see, to take heed. He gently guides and restores us to a greater insight, a greater vision. He opens up these new windows for us. That's what a shepherd does. God expects us to meet others at their weaknesses, at their limitations. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26 Because that's what He always does. He meets you when your head is down in the dust. He meets you when you can't get it, when you don't understand, and when you can't go on. 
fourthly and lastly, we need to meditate on and have ownership of the resurrection. The scriptures, old and new, confirmed by the words of Christ, exhibit a stunning harmony on all matters of truth and life. Of course, the resurrection is included there. And the resurrection, man, it makes for much just ripe meditation. The resurrection teaches us, the resurrection proves, or vindicates, if you will, Christ's deity. Christ is Lord, Christ is Messiah. That's Romans 1.4. Christ, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 1.4. The resurrection teaches us that apart from it, our faith is impotent, it is really dead. 1 Corinthians 15.12-19. And so we are above all men most to be pitied. Right? If we've just believed in Christ in this life, that there is no resurrection from the dead, Thirdly, the resurrection teaches us that there is triumph over sin and death. It's final. It's complete. Salvation has been granted to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-57. Romans 4.25 says that he was buried for our transgressions right, and raised up for our justification. And what a comforting verse. Fourthly, Romans 6 teaches us about the resurrection that we, if you are a believer, you have been buried with him and you have been raised with Him in newness of life. And because now you are a new creature in Christ, resurrected from your spiritual deadness, you can live holy lives. Because now, Christ lives in you. Galatians 2.20 And lastly, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the resurrection teaches us. We have a living hope And that hope sees into eternity. That hope looks up. It sets our minds to the things above. And it sees that our citizenship is in heaven. That the earth is passing away. Our body is passing away. But there is a greater glory awaiting us. We we await the coming of Christ because of this. We long to be in heaven with Him. We see our stay here as decidedly impermanent. And the rest of the world we see in the same light. Christ our hope. Christ our glory. One day He will be revealed as He truly is and in that revelation we too will be revealed as we truly are and partake of the divine nature. Philippians 3.21 1 John 3.2 We will see Him as He is and that hope purifies us now. For those of you who do not have faith in this central doctrine of the Bible, for those of you who don't have faith in Christ, Understand that God's word says to you that His Son, Jesus Christ, has risen from the dead and lives in glory in heaven and will one day return in love for believers, but in wrath and judgment for those who disobey the gospel, who will not believe. And yet, despite the staggering nature of this truth, there is a very simple demand on your life, that is to believe. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. It's a promise. The first people to believe the resurrection weren't the disciples. They weren't the followers of Christ. Do you know who the first people were to believe? It was the Pharisees. Remember Matthew 27? They tell Pilate, Remember, I, Jesus said that he's going to rise three days, three days after his death. So we've got to make sure that you have guards and a big stone and set a seal on that stone so no one can get to him. They actually believed that he was going to rise again from the dead. 
or that the disciples would use that as a ruse to make it look like that he raised from the dead. Unfortunately, the disciples at that point in time didn't have even any kind of belief in the resurrection of the dead. I tell you this, Christ will meet you at your lack. Christ will meet you at your deficiency in faith. Christ will meet you at your inability to believe if you will submit. Your inability is the starting point for his ability to shine. He met the disciples with his absence. He met Mary with his presence. And they came away convinced and full understanding was given to them later on. It's not about understanding every doctrine in the Bible. No, but it's about a heart belief in the truth that is laid before you this morning. What reasons do you have not to believe? You know what is true and your hearts do convict you. And so may the Lord have mercy on you and may the Lord have mercy on us all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the staggering truth of your resurrection, that you are indeed risen from the dead, conquering sin and death, conquering Satan, completing, in a sense, our salvation. We thank you, God, that you gave a greater vision of, of who you are and of your purpose to the disciples and to your followers, and you give that to us today. Lord, we thank you, Father, that you have risen so that we might rise into newness of life. You've risen so that we might now live holy lives looking forward to our future union with you in heaven. Lord, I pray, God, for any of us here who do not know you, who are not raised from the spiritual, from their spiritual deadness. God, may you have mercy upon their hearts. May you, O oh God, just graciously open up their eyes and open up their ears to hear, to see the truth that you are God See the truth that your Son has died on the cross for the sins of the world. And if one confesses Jesus as Lord and believes in His name because of that cross work, their sins will be forgiven. Lord, we thank You. We thank You that You are raised in power, seated at the right hand of the Father, and that at the present time You are even exercising great ministry on our behalf. We thank You for interceding uh, for us. We thank you that you will one day return and you will reign in glory. We give you all praise and honor in Jesus' name.